There's a deep Celtic spirit behind all the fun you'll find at New Year's in Scotland. It was all about clearing out the old spirits and bringing in the new. And so a lot of the celebrations associated with Hogmanay involve fire. Come along as we hear about the biggest New Year's celebration in the world and one of the oddest. Most of us are watching the ball drop in Times Square, but there is a small community in North Carolina that's watching a giant pickle drop. A sommelier from Paris helps us with the wine. So I think we have a tendency to serve red wine a bit too warm. And a friend from Rome takes us to drink in the atmosphere at her favorite fountains in the Eternal City. Water, for me, is the soundtrack of a city. If I had to associate one sound with my city, it would be the trickling of the water in the fountains. We'll bring the party to you as we anticipate a better year ahead. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What do you like to eat or drink to welcome in the new year? Cecily Wong from Atlas Obscura delves into the special things people around the world consume to guarantee a good year ahead. That's coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll also be joined by a sommelier from Paris to help us appreciate all that goes into making and enjoying fine wine. Olivier Manier has tips for finding a good bargain and the best ways to serve and impress your friends. And as the calendar changes, the Eternal City is calling. We'll look at the history and beauty that's reflected in the waters of Rome, where extravagant fountains tap into Rome's civic engineering and an incredible past. New Year's is such a big deal in Scotland, they've even given it a special name, Hogmanay. They dance in the streets of Edinburgh for four days. As we anticipate a much better year ahead of us, we're joined by Scottish tour guides Liz Lister and Cullen Mares for a look at the New Year's traditions you'll find in the land of Auld Lang Syne. So, Cullen, how is New Year's a, a bigger deal in Scotland than in other countries? Well, in Scotland, we don't usually call it New Year's Eve. We call it Hogmanay. So that's a specifically Scottish word for a party that happens all around the world. Mm-hmm. So we tend to think in Scotland that that's our own party. The origins of the name Hogmanay... You'll hear seven different versions if you ask a Scots person, but that is basically our our word for New Year's Eve. So for many years, it was much bigger than than Christmas, really. Uh, Christmas wasn't really celebrated in Scotland for about 500 years, uh, really since the time of the Reformation in 1560. And then up until the mid-1900s, when I suppose commercialization and things came in and New Year's started to to be less celebrated. But Hogmanay really has always been the big party of the year in Scotland. Would that go back even before... Christianity just to sort of the middle of the winter kind of thing? Is yeah, it related so to that? Yeah, probably pagan, sort of pre-Christian mm-hmm. um, traditions of passing the, the shortest day of the year and then uh, celebrating that light will be coming back and it's a long winter. Okay, now Liz, what is a, a childhood memory that, that is particularly uh, fun for you uh, as you think back on a lifetime of Hogmanay celebrations? Oh, there are many Hogmanay celebrations, but Huganan is um, a gift-bearing. And so, as you say, midwinter, it was all about clearing out the old spirits and bringing in the new. And so a lot of the celebrations associated with Hogmanay involve fire burning out. 
and also a word called seining, which is cleansing. So dipping water and sprinkling the house and burning juniper, all traditions which vary greatly across Scotland. But the one thing that remains true across all the traditions is bringing a gift. And the traditional gifts are either a lump of coal or peat for your hearth and some food. Uh, Today, the most common gifts of food are shortbread and what's called black bun. So black bun is a fruitcake wrapped in pastry. But it might have been a herring and they decorated the herrings um, if it was a coastal town. So some sort of gift to bring in. And it was also the person who brought it. Because if you got a tall, dark stranger standing on your step as what we call the first foot of the year, the first person to come over your threshold, then that was considered to be good luck for the whole year. If you got a short, dumpy bochel, as we'd say in Scotland, then your luck wasn't in. So, <laughs> wait a minute now. So the first footing... Yeah. It, it, it determines how much luck you're going to have in the next year. Yeah, and it's, who comes who to your comes door. In. Because neighbours go to neighbours to wish them good luck and to take a gift to them. And then you're talking about a dark or a dark-haired man. That's A, a tall, better. dark mm. stranger some, is considered really good luck. Yes. Now, why a tall, dark stranger instead of a some, tall, blonde stranger? Some people say that might be due to the time of when the Vikings came raiding into Scotland, and so it was bad luck. Very if, bad you, if you had a blonde a Norwegian blonde, yeah. walk through your door, it's yeah. going to be a miserable year. Yeah, so maybe that's where the dark hair things comes from. So I, I remember as a child, my dad had dark hair. He's now got grey hair, uh, but it, he he would be he's the, popular. Everybody he'd, wants he'd be, him to he'd come be the over. star with the neighbours at New Year. Yeah, he goes to their house. So if to you're the darkest complected uh, Scotsman in the village, you're pretty popular <laughs> at one minute before midnight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> come to my house, Colin. What's a memory that you have about uh, New Year's or Hogmanay? Well, as a child, we were allowed to. Well, when, once we got a little older, allowed to stay up to the bells, so we call it the bells when it turns to midnight. And then always after midnight, it's the first food time begins. My dad would go to the neighbours, or the neighbours would come to ours. And it's often a time as well when maybe people in the neighbourhood don't really spend a lot of time with each other, but that is the one time of the year that you'll go and you'll meet your neighbours and everyone goes into each other's houses. So if you're an anthropologist looking at this and trying to think, well, why do they have all of these fancy, exuberant celebrations in the dead of winter and mm. midnight? Yeah. What would you derive as, as sort of an observer of this? We do have, obviously, a long and dark winter in Scotland, and so I think that's the time of the year that you want to feast and you want to rejoice and just kind of give you a bit of a pick-up. Uh, it can be a sad time of year. Because there was a time when it was tough to make it through the winter. Yeah. yeah. And you had to have some promise that the spring is going to come. Yeah. I think, again, it's this burning to burn the spirits, the old spirits so of the old year. To clean out the old and the bad. Just mm-hmm. have a fresh start. Liz Lister lives just across the water from Edinburgh in Fife. Colin Mayers moved from Glasgow to New Zealand a few years ago. They're professional tour guides, and they're filling us in on the special Scottish traditions for the new year on travel with Rick Steves. So celebrations evolve, and modern people don't do it the way they did uh, in their great-grandparents' day. Just personally, how are you going to celebrate this New Year's Eve? You gather at some focal point in your community. Uh In my community, I live in a little rural village. And so the focal point is the golf club. And so we will have music, we'll have dancing, we'll have toasting. And of course, the highlight of the evening at the bells, Auld Lang Syne. The singing of Auld Lang Syne as as the evening comes to an end. And the end of Auld Lang Syne, you cross hands with your neighbour and uh, you're celebrating the new year. You're seeing days gone by, Auld Lang Syne. So think about that. What does Auld Lang Syne mean in, in Scottish? Well, we thought if Colin sang it and I interpreted it, because it, a lot of people say in America that it's the song that they sing, but nobody knows the meaning of it. Yeah. Yes. Let's see what happens. Colin, okay. are you ready? <coughs> yes. 
Should all the acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should all the acquaintance be forgot for old lang syne? So what we're talking about there is that if there's anything that's gone wrong or any bad feeling, that's in the year gone by. And we're reflecting on days gone by, old Lang Syne, days long since. Days long since. And that's by Robbie Burns. It is. It was a ballad. And Robbie Burns didn't write everything that is attributed to him, but he collected mm. ballads and added to them and wrote them down, most importantly. Colin, we heard the first verse of Robbie Burns' Old Lang Syne. Uh, what's the second verse? Second verse goes something like this. And surely you'll be your pint stoop, and surely I'll be mine. We'll tack a cup o' kindness yet for old lang syne. So this is a drinking song, so they're celebrating, they're toasting each other in the new year. So a pint stoop, a tankard, a pint glass of beer, and they're they're celebrating their what was the Toasting. Scottish word again? A pint? Uh... Stoop. S-T-O-U-P. A tankard. Yep. Okay. So they're saying you buy yours and I'll buy mine. <laughs> you buy yours and I'll buy mine. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. But so we'll be friends anyway. You buy yours, I'll buy mine. <laughs> we'll be friends anyways. Yeah. Let's hear the next verse. We twa here on about the braise and put the gowans fine. But we've wondered money a weary fit since old lang syne. Liz, what so is that? what's happening here is drink is being consumed. You can either get happy or in the case of Scots, very often they get maudlin and they start to reflect on the year. So many people don't like New Year because of this reflecting and oh, your so sadness you're, you're and whatever. A few more so you're drinking, more exactly. And... and what he's doing now is reflecting back with his neighbour on how they wandered about the braes, which are the hills, mm-hmm. and they've collected the gowans, which are the daisies, and had great times just walking on the hills. In days gone by. In days gone by. Mm-hmm. Is there another verse? Two more. <laughs> okay, you can count one. out some of it. No, no, this is fascinating. Yeah. We twa he peddled in the burn fee morning sun till dine. But seas between us braid he roared sin old lang syne. So this is reflecting back to childhood how they paddled in the burns. A burn is a little stream from morning until dine, which is dinner. But seas now, broad seas between us, you know, um, oceans are separating us oh, now. We've gone our different course. ways, you know, so broad seas separated us where we once paddled together in the burn. So even maybe families have emigrated to exactly, America. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And in Auld Lang Syne, we were together. And this is when the Have time another, that you would... I want another drink, I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens. People crying into their yeah. beer. We were wandering in the hills yeah. thinking about old days. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to buy yours, you I'm going to buy mine. It, yeah. <laughs> Grandma and Grandpa in America. <laughs> it gets better it'll now. Never now, be the same. now we leave you on a positive. Now it gets like pick me up. First of all, what language is this that we're listening Old to? Old Scots. Old Scots. Okay, Colin, the final verse of Old Lang Syne. And there's a hand, my trusty fear, and gee's a hand, o oh thine. We'll tack a right good wally wa. For all lang syne. 
So this is for getting all the model and this is you in the here and now. And at this point, everyone's in a circle and everyone crosses hands. You're meeting new friends, you're clasping hands with old friends and you're taking a right good willy walk, <laughs> which is a right goodwill draft. A good swallow. Oh, so another, dra- another, another drink. drink. Right. <laughs> this <laughs> is what we're, it's all about. We're not going to be this sad. We're going to be happy. Life goes on and absolutely. we're together. And we're together. And then the tradition is that you're meeting up when the bells ring, you kiss the person next to you. Mm-hmm. So in the press at the moment, there's a, a lot being written about New Year celebrations, Hogmanay celebrations, being teenage um, drunken rabbles. Right. But always <laughs> has it been such because the opportunity to go to the gathering point drink a lot, and then kiss the person next to you. What teenager's going to turn it down? <laughs> For the rest of my life, when I hear Auld Lang Syne now, yeah. I won't understand every line, but I'll, I'll appreciate yeah. that it really but is. The, a, the a mistake that many people make as well is to cross hands from the very start of the song. Uh, but you start off with the hands just side by side, and then it's only in that last verse when you say, there's a hand, my trusty fear, my trusty friend, and give a hand a line, give me your hand. That's when you cross over, and that also pulls everyone a, a bit closer. And the other big sin that you must not commit under any circumstance is to say for the sake, which everybody <laughs> does, but it's traditionally, it's for Auld Lang Syne. It's not for the sake of Auld Lang Syne. Okay. Big so mistake. For <laughs> Auld Lang Syne. And we should know for days, days gone, gone by, by. Old days gone. So we're, we're, we're thinking about the days gone by. We're celebrating that we're together and we can look into a promising future. Happy New Year's. Happy New Year. Happy Hogmanay. <laughs> Happy Hogmanay. Happy Hogmanay. Thanks so much, Colin Mares and Liz Lister. Thank you. We have web links to Liz and Colin with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. That's where you can hear about a winter fire festival in the Shetland Islands. We're serving up the foods and drinks that people are enjoying to celebrate the new year all around the world. But first, Paris sommelier Olivier Manier brings the wine. He joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. It's been a few years, but I'll never forget the afternoon I enjoyed getting acquainted with a variety of fine French wines and the proprietor at Au Chateau in Paris. Olivier Manier's restaurant and tasting bar is in a 17th century royal wine cellar. It's about a block from the Louvre. His shop won the Award of Excellence from Wine Spectator magazine for having one of the best wine lists in Paris. Olivier joins us now for a little French wine degustation. It's time for a tasting. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. Olivia, I had such a beautiful afternoon with you. Tell us about your business and, and what you do in Paris. Well, basically, what we do at Au Chateau is we try to explain French wine to people. People might come to France loving wine, but not really knowing much about French wine. We try to help them make sense of French wine. So we give wine tasting classes that are actually in English, and we have classes every day. Uh, we also do day trips to Champagne. We do uh, cruises on the Seine River. And we also recently opened a wine bar you know, French wines have a great reputation among Americans. What do Europeans think of French wines? Oh, well, Europeans just love, they love French wines, really. Um, there's a lot of good wines, so it's hard not to like them. But I would say that some of the biggest consumers of French wine in the world are the UK, Belgium, Germany. So really our neighbors are big consumers of French wine. But it's funny because in Europe, you know, you have old ideas that basically stick so when people want to buy cars or dishwashers, they think Germany, yes, France, no. And it's just the opposite for wine, which is actually kind of funny because, you know, the Germans make great wine and French cars are actually not that bad. So, <laughs> well, But overall, you know, French wine, anybody who likes wine is going to like French wine at some point. Now make some general observations for us about the character of wines from different French regions and how that relates to the, the experience you're going to have enjoying the wine and, and the prices. 
in a nutshell, what you can remember about French wine that's going to be helpful is that if you like lighter wines, okay, you should stick to the northern part of France, so the Loire Valley, so Burgundy, Champagne, Alsace. If you prefer big, you know, fuller-bodied wines, well, you should head to the south where it's sunnier, so you're going to have more concentration. Also, you should remember that if you're going for the big names, you know, Bordeaux, Champagne, Burgundy, well, you're going to have to pay a big price. And if you're going for names that are not as well-known, the Languedoc, the Southwest, and such regions, well, that's where you're going to get really great value for your money. So if you haven't heard of the region, Languedoc, Southwest, can you conclude the quality is less or it's just not marketed as well? No, absolutely not. You find really good wines everywhere in France. A tip I give to my clients, if if you're hesitating between two bottles that are at the same exact price, one that comes from a well-known area, one Mm -hmm. that comes from the not-so-well-known area, Go for the one that's not so well-known because for the same price, it's usually going to be better. A region like the Languedoc, for instance, it's the largest wine-producing region in the world. The Languedoc makes more wine than Australia. The Languedoc makes more wine than Argentina. And yet, most people have not even heard of the Languedoc. You know, most people, when they're looking for Shiraz, they look at Australian wines. Well, the Languedoc has three times more Shiraz planted than all of Australia. So really, French wine, the the main thing to me that characterizes French wine is bad marketing. And... Hmm. To understand that is you have to look at the sociology of who is behind the wine. And basically, they're farmers. So they're not corporations. They're not marketing people at all. They're just small farmers that try to make good wine, basically. So you could get a high-end Languedoc wine, and it would cost less than a low-end Bordeaux and conceivably be a much better wine? Absolutely. It's a different style because the grapes are a little bit different. But if you spend, let's say, in America, if you spend uh, $25 well, you're much, much better off going for a wine from the Southwest or from mm-hmm. the Languedoc than you are spending it on Bordeaux. Actually, I would tell you, if you only have $25 to spend, just stay away from Bordeaux because the inflation for the good wines in Bordeaux has been so gigantic over the past few years that uh, a good Bordeaux is going to be good, but it's going to be super expensive. So the demand, just because it's a famous name and anybody wants a Bordeaux, the demand's going to drive the price up. Olivia, you mentioned that the uh, southern part of France produces a heavier wine. Is it fair to say if you compared Spanish wines and German wines, that's going to be generally really heavy and lighter? It would sort of be similar to the regions bordering France, uh, Germany, and Spain? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what you say is very true. Basically, the climate of where the grapes are grown has a tremendous impact on the grapes and therefore on the style of wine. Um, So it's something that anybody can remember. The warmer the climate, the sunnier the area, the more concentration you're going to get. So it's going to make a big concentrated red wine and it's also going to make for white wines that are a bit less fresh if you're in a really hot area. That's why if you look at a, a Champagne, Champagne is very fresh, it's very crisp. It's also because it's bad weather in Champagne. You know, you go to Champagne most of the year, it's rainy, it's gray, it's pretty cold. Basically, if you want those crisp white wines, you got to step away from the sun. Now, you mentioned the French are are not very good marketers of their wine. I know that the name of the region is, is quite important, and some regions defend their name and others don't, and they pay the consequences. What are a couple of examples of that? That is very true. You know, in in America, people identify wine by the grape. You buy a Pinot Noir, Merlot. In France, not at all. And throughout Europe, basically, we talk about the regions. You know, you buy Bordeaux, Champagne, Beaujolais, uh, Chianti in Italy. Those are regions, okay? And basically, when a name of a region becomes well-known, well, it creates a situation. And so that's what happened for Champagne, for instance. You know, the Champagne people, people started making sparkling wine all over the world, and they started calling it Champagne. It's like, well, it's, you know, it's bubbly, so it's champagne. And the champagne people are like, pop, 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 pop. you do whatever you please, but that's our name. 
you don't use our name. So they've and defended they that sued. word. Yeah, and they sued. They went all out in terms of legal procedures, and they won. They won everywhere. And so, therefore, they created basically a whole legal frame internationally where now you cannot use that word anymore. So they've going the extra mile legally has helped them and helped, I would say, everybody create a whole new field of law that has to do with the intellectual property of um, the origin of what we eat and drink. What's your favorite sparkling wine outside of Champagne in France? Ooh, um, I think the Loire Valley has really good ones. I like the, the sparkling wines in Vouvray, for instance. So with the really, Chenin you Blanc can Ray. get a what we would think of as a Champagne in Vouvray or the Loire Valley. It has a different name, but it would be also very good. Absolutely, and much cheaper. Every wine region in France actually produces sparkling wine. Hmm. You can get sparkling wine from Alsace, But because from they can't use the name Champagne, they can't charge what the market would bear. This is fascinating. We're speaking with Olivier Manier, and his website is o-chateau.com. O-chateau.com. We're talking about appreciating and enjoying French wine. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Bill's on the phone in Tonawanda, New York. Bill, thanks for your call. Hello, Olivier. Hello. I have a more of a general type of question than anything. I will go into a, uh, a wine store, and this is a pretty decent-sized wine store, and in the French red wine section, they have prices ranging from, well, roughly 8 to probably 10 times that amount in dollars from basically any region you can imagine, you know, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Rhone. And with the thousands of vintners that, that France has, I have a tough time making a selection as far as trying to come up with a decent uh, Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon simply because there's such a variety and there's such a selection. So I was just simply wondering, how would you suggest you know, someone going in and trying to you know, identify what would be a, a good red wine you know, from France? I mean, do you do it by year first? Do you do it by region? You know, could you elaborate a little possibly on that? I'd say that most people in the state tend to know the grapes they like. You know, you know, you prefer Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir. So what you can do at that point is find out which regions in France will grow these grapes. In France, and that's a huge difference with anywhere else in the world, each region specializes on a given set of grape varieties. Okay, so if you like the Pinot Noir, you have to go to Burgundy. If you like the Merlot, Bordeaux is a good destination. If you like Shiraz, the Languedoc, If you like Sauvignon Blanc, that's going to be the Loire, and so on and so forth. Once you have identified the regions that might please you the most, then you're going to grow more familiar with the prices and potentially the names of the wineries that you're going to like. Okay, if you say, oh, I like a good Shiraz, Uh, if I want a big Shiraz, I'm going to go in the Languedoc. If I want a Shiraz that's going to be a bit more delicate, I'm going to go in the Rhone Valley. Okay, and in the Rhone Valley, in the States, you find some big names. You find Chapoutier, you find Jaboulet, you find Chave. And then you can know, you know, you can start exploring. I would say the vintage, so the year, should come last because the vintage has to do with basically the weather, but the weather in that specific region of the world. It's actually a great way to notice people who are completely full of it when it comes to wine. People will tell you, oh, you know, 2005, great year. You're like, where? You know, is that huh. New Zealand? Is that <laughs> Sonoma County? Is that, you know? So first, identify the grapes you like. Then that will tell you the regions. And then you can look into uh, wineries and into vintages. Oh, that's terrific. Okay. You should do the wine tasting class at the beginning of your trip. Because we have a lot of people who do it at the end and say, oh, man, I wish I'd done it before. This way I could have ordered the wine better and more conveniently uh, every time we went out. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. Hey, Bill, thanks for your call. Thank you, Bill, and see you soon. Thank you.
thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your, your suggestions, Olivier. Happy travels, Bill. Bye-bye. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Olivier Manier of Au Chateau in Paris is coaching us on how local character makes all the difference in the wine you're drinking. Olivier portrays the people of his hometown in his book, Stuff Parisians Like, and he talks more about wine appreciation in his book, Into Wine, An Invitation to Pleasure. How does topsoil shape the character of the wine? Well, the soil is the most important thing to understand wine because basically vine is a creeper. Okay, so the roots grow very deep. To give you an idea, a root can go as far as uh, 150 feet down. Okay, so it's extremely deep. So meaning you're going to cross all of these geological layers, you know, each having its own little fauna and flora and bacterial activity. So all this is going to feed the roots with a unique taste of that place. And therefore, the grape will come up with a unique taste, which is the taste of that place, of that very terroir. So there is no understanding wine if you don't realize how much wine has to do with the soil and how wine has to do with geology. So the, the vintner can shape or influence the character of the topsoil, but, but the deeper geology is really uh, tied to the, the history of that land, and, and that's what the vines are looking for? Absolutely. You know, it's actually interesting because in France it's illegal to irrigate vine. And we do not allow this because basically if you irrigate vine, which is something you find all over the rest of the world of wine, they do drip irrigation, okay? So they feed water on the surface. If you do this, the roots are going to grow because it's their nature, but they grow horizontally Ah. instead of growing vertically, instead of going down. So those roots never leave the superficial layer. So meaning the true uniqueness, the true singularity of your soil, you're not going to express it. Ah. So it's actually with a single piece of regulation, like the absence of uh, irrigation, that's going to trigger fantastic diversity in the wines produced in France. When we're tasting wine, a lot of us uh, rookies just think dry, sweet, fruity, oaky, this sort of thing. What are some key words that can expand our vocabulary so we can actually identify characteristics that are important? Well, I would say think of the words you would use to describe a person. You know, you're at a restaurant, think of the words you would use to describe the person in front of you. You know, a wine can be shy, it can be exuberant, it can be loud, it can be tender, it can be soft, it can be shallow, it can be boring. To me, those are much better terms. Hmm. Also because frequently when people use the words dry, uh, sweet, they don't really understand what it means. So it might lead to more, you know, blur between you and the person you're trying to express your your wine preferences mm-hmm. to. When you look at a lot of people in wine tastings, they'll suck in air as they're tasting the wine or they'll actually chew the wine. What's going on there and, and, and what is actually helpful? It's basically oxygen has a big impact and it's going to help release the aromas. Okay, And the aromas of wine are pretty volatile. So when you subject them to, to oxygen, it's going to make your wine much more loud, much more. It will bring out its flavors and aromas. It's the same logic basically when you decant the wine and when you let the wine breathe. It's just putting ah. oxygen in contact with the wine. Looking at your wine with a magnifying glass, you know. What do you look for in a good white wine? I like my white ones to be crisp, to be fresh. You know, I like a refreshing white one. That's, to me, the greatest quality. And that's something I love about French whites is that they're so crisp and so fresh. What about legs? People talk a lot about the legs. When they swish the glass, they look at the little drips coming down and say, nice legs. Absolutely. All those legs, two things in those, sugar and alcohol. Okay. So basically, if you have a white one, in white, alcohol is relatively steady. So the legs will highlight the sugar content. So you'll be able to see whether it's dry, that's low sugar, sweet, that's high sugar. Uh, for reds, it's less clear cut. So you're going to be able to say if it's going to be a, a lighter wine, if it has a few legs, or a bigger, stronger wines, if it has a lot of legs, if they're much faster, more, more thick as well. 
Why is French wine so diverse? I mean, there must be a thousand different French wines in, in one country. Well, first, volumes. You know, France is the largest wine-producing country in the world. We make uh, 24% of all the wines in the world. So necessarily, we're going to have a lot of diversity. The geography as well. France is a very small country, but basically all the climates you find in the world, you'll find them somewhere in France. And then, of course, we have that history and the culture to preserve and to express that local um, variety. We're not in the culture of making high volumes of similar wines, you know, of branded wines, of big brands, of Yellowtail, of Gal. France is not about this at all. It's a bunch of very small people. So for consumers, it might be a bit like overwhelming, like, oh my God, it's so... But please, I, I, I really ask to give um, those wines a chance because if we don't, the wine industry is going to be like every other industry in the world. It's just going to be McDonald's and, and so on. It's going to be like three companies running the show, which is basically already the case in California, already the case in Australia. So resistance, my friends, go for the smaller names. What impact do the French vintners see on their wines because of climate change? Well, worldwide, I think that uh, you can see the temperatures are rising and have risen over the years. And, you know, there's two types of maturities in the, in the grapes. You basically harvest when you have enough sugar. And so that's due directly to the sunshine. But there's another aspect, which is the ripeness of the tannins, of the skin, basically. And there used to be a difference of two or three days between the moment the sugar ready and the moment the tannins were ready. And now, since temperatures have risen, uh, you have more like two or three weeks. So meaning in the meantime, you have to wait for the tannins, for the skins to be ripe. And so you harvest with much higher uh, sugar concentration, which leads to the, the escalation that we all witness in terms of uh, alcohol concentration in our wine. It used to be 12, 13%. Now it's frequently 14, 15, sometimes 16, sometimes even more percent uh, alcohol. And that's all due to uh, climate change. If you're in Napa Valley and you want to make a red wine, it's going to be very hard to make it less than 14% alcohol. And then what's the right temperature to drink a red wine? I think there's a little confusion about that lately. Well, yeah, because, you know, we, everybody says room temperature, but the expression room temperature came from times where the, the rooms we lived in were much cooler in terms of temperature than they are today. So I think we have a tendency to serve red wine a bit too warm. Um, you know, it's perfectly acceptable to put your wine in the refrigerator for a few minutes before you drink it. So I think we, we serve reds a bit too warm and white wines a bit too cold, a bit too chilled. Uh, take them out of the fridge a little bit before you drink them. You'll see you'll make both the reds and the whites much more drinkable. I'm glad you said that because I would like the red to be a little cooler than how it's normally served. You can even ask at a restaurant to, to chill it for a while. Oh, yeah, fully acceptable. Don't be shy. Five or ten minutes in the fridge and it'll be better for you. I agree. Olivier, take me to a beautiful place to enjoy a glass of wine with you and let's look at the view and share one tip on how we can better appreciate the wine culture of France. I would take you to a hill in Alsace, which is, I believe, a completely underrated wine region, a lovely white wine in Alsace, and we would drink a lovely uh, Pinot Gris, and we'd sit there and we'd watch the beautiful Alsatian villages and the churches, the, the smoke coming out of the chimneys, and we'd drink something really crisp and fresh, and the sunshine will not be too warm, just be warm enough, and it will just be a blast. I can see it right now. Corduroy Hills. <laughs> I love it when the, when the vines sort of make a corduroy pattern on the hills and you know that just over the Rhine River is Germany at your back are the Vosges Mountains and on your table is a glass of beautiful Pinot Gris I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves we've been speaking with Olivier Manier Olivier uh, has a wine bar in Paris he gives uh, wine tastings and talks about wine, you can learn more about his work at his website ochateau.com o-chateau.com 
And let's finish it with a toast, Olivier. Well, I would uh, take the words of our former president, Jacques Chirac, who whenever he would offer a toast, would raise his glass and would say, à nos chevaux, à nos femmes, et à ceux qui les montent. Which would translate into, to our horses, to our wives, and to those who ride them. Voilà. Vive la France. Merci bien, Olivier Magny. Merci. We explore the elegant waters of Rome in a few minutes on Travel with Rick Steves. But first, the folks at Atlas Obscura delve into the unusual cocktails and special foods that people enjoy for New Year's around the world. Our friends at Atlas Obscura have plenty of fun finding and describing festive food and drink traditions all around the world. We're joined by the co-author of their latest book called Gastro Obscura, Cecily Wong, to help celebrate the New Year. Cecily, thanks for being with us. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. Well, Happy New Year. And uh, I think a lot of people historically have seen champagne, which a lot of us are drinking on New Year's Eve, used as an energy drink. What's the history of champagne as an energy drink? Champagne was used as an energy drink for many years, especially kind of famously at the 1908 London Olympics, where a lot of the runners drank champagne for rejuvenation and ended up too drunk to finish. People drank champagne in the Olympics? Ah, yes. Maybe they know something about alcohol that I don't know, but it doesn't make me run faster. I don't think they did. They didn't fare very well. <laughs> well, they probably just wanted an excuse to drink champagne. Also, in your book, you write about distilleries in Kentucky, where I guess moonshine is, is now legal. So now I understand moonshine is clear, unaged whiskey, and there's actually a school for it. Yes, there is a school in Kentucky called Moonshine University, and you can take a course now that moonshine is legal that will teach you how to uh, distill it legally. So that would be kind of fun if you're having a party on New Year's and uh, you actually want to serve literal moonshine. Tell me about the historic drink in Louisiana, a gin fizz cocktail, right? Yes, the gin fizz cocktail is a signature Louisiana drink. It is a classic gin fizz, but they add egg whites and then the the final step is to shake it for 12 minutes until it gets super frothy and kind of creamy, the texture of thick milk. Hmm. Have you had it? I have not, but that's definitely a reason to go to Louisiana. Apparently there are bars, there were bars um, once because it was so popular that they would hire shaker boys and their whole job was to just shake these minutes. cocktails. Yes. Take me uh, somewhere in the, in the Near East for something that's characteristic for a New Year's celebration. Yeah, in Iran, they they often make an ice cream sandwich that is filled with Iranian flavors. So the the ice cream is flavored with saffron and rose water, and then the the sandwich part is this very light wafer, and then the whole thing is rolled in pistachios. I remember that. In fact, that was one of the the most memorable sort of street food attractions I had, even apart from New Year's when I was in Iran, was their ice cream sandwiches, and they had that just that wonderful kind of fragrant saffron and rose water sort of uh, allure about them. It was quite nice. Um, let's think of something else. Let's head over to Asia. Tell me some sort of a memorable cake or something like that that you found that people celebrate the New Year with in Asia. For the Lunar New Year in Mongolia, they make um, something colloquially called the shoe sole cake. And it's this stacked cake made up of little cakes that have been stamped with a family stamp. And this, this stamp is really unusual because it's it, it kind of identifies each family like a like a fingerprint. It's very unique to the family. And so only you can make your own shoe sole cake. And it's decorated with candies and sugar cubes, dried milk curds, 
And there's lots of symbolism behind it, um, depending on how high you stack it, what you decorate it with. So that's in Mongolia. Would that be kind of, would they have some Buddhist symbolism? Yes. The, the shape of the cake is, is supposed to symbolize um, a sacred Buddhist mountain. So what else could we do on New Year's Eve? Uh, yeah. So another thing that's really cool in Cambodia is that they, um, they take a pumpkin um, and they hollow it out kind of like a jack-o'-lantern the way that we do it in the States. But um, they fill it with this coconut custard and then they steam it um, until the coconut custard is like soft and delicious and, and the pumpkin can be sliced through as well. And they just slice the whole thing like a cake. Um, wow. And yeah, it seems like a pretty hard recipe to master because you're, you're kind of judging based on the size of the pumpkin and, and how much custard you put in. And, and it can very easily fall once you cut into it. So it takes some skill. So it's definitely kind of a special occasion cake. Maybe that's one thing you might want to just wait until you get to Cambodia for New Year's to enjoy. Yeah, that's probably take a few tries. What, what else might I find in Southeast Asia? There's a New Year's Eve salad that is popular in Singapore. Um, it's, it's just filled with homophones and, and double meanings. Um, the, the name itself has a double meaning. The name of the salad is called Yusheng. And Yu is the word for fish, but it also sounds like the word for abundance. And so they're hoping for abundance in the year to come. And then each ingredient that they put into the dish also has kind of a second meaning. So there's lime for luck, um, peanut crumbs to symbolize gold and silver, green radishes for eternal youth. They add the ingredients one by one, and each time they, they say something for luck, and they throw the salad up in the air with chopsticks as high as they can. And the higher you can throw it symbolizes you know better returns in the year to come. So the whole thing is kind of fun, tasty, and filled with lots of double meanings. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cecily Wong, and she is the co-author of the book called Gastro Obscura. It's a food adventures guide collecting over 500 unforgettable taste treats that you might run into and you might not in your travels. And we've been talking about food treats in Persia, in Mongolia, in Cambodia, Singapore, Let's finish off with something crazy that goes on in the United States. You must have uh, bumped into some interesting traditions in the United States that most of us might not even know about. What's one that comes to mind? Well, most of us are watching the ball drop in Times Square, but there is a small community in North Carolina that's watching a giant pickle drop um, instead of a ball. A pickle? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my goodness. How big? It's it's a three-foot-long pickle. Um, Okay. And it drops at 7 p.m. early, before midnight, into a giant pickle tank. And it splashes, and everyone dances and celebrates the New Year at 7 p.m. and um, goes home. It's it's kind of a—it's an early celebration because 7 p.m. is midnight in Greenwich Mean Time. So that's how they justify that they are <laughs> celebrating the New Year. Or maybe the people in North Carolina just want to go to bed early and celebrate New Year's without staying up till midnight. Yeah, I mean, you get a pickle instead, so it seems And you get a pickle. All right. Hey, Cecily Wong, thank you so much. And it must have been fun putting together Gastro Obscurum, and it's certainly fun to page through that as we think of crazy ways to celebrate the new year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Cecily Wong joined us from her home studio in Portland, Oregon. She co-authors the Gastro Obscura Guide to the World's Most Wondrous and Often Unusual Foods and Beverages. There's more at gastroobscura.com. From a little trickle of water, the history of Rome can spring to life. Joining us now are Rome-based tour guide Francesca Caruso and Jean Openshaw. 
He's the co-author of my art books, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces and Europe 101. Jean and Francesca, thanks for joining us. Ciao. Thank you for having us. Ciao. Water in Rome. I mean, when I think of Rome, and I've been going there all my life, I just, you know, I can think of water. You, you're walking through the city at night, and you hear the gush of the Trevi Fountain in the distance even before you get there. You can uh, just think of the, the beauty of just enjoying a public fountain when you're really thirsty halfway through a, a grueling day of sightseeing with the beating heat in the middle of the summer and so on. What does water mean to you, Francesca, about Rome? I would say that water, for me, is the soundtrack of a city. If I had to associate one sound with my city, it would be the trickling of the water in the fountains, a Travi fountain that you hear before you see. And I would also think of it as uh, one of the fundamental elements of the city, a city built on a river, a city of people who were able to move water like nobody else, a city that was close to a coast. So water is really an essential part of its identity. Romans were famous as engineers, and they could move water with their, with their brilliance that way to accommodate the needs of a million people in ancient Rome. Gene, what about water? Some of the grandest monuments that we know have to do with water, the aqueducts that the Romans had. You know, the, the ancient Romans, they didn't drink the Tiber River water. They didn't like it. They flushed their sewage into it through the Cloaca Maxima. Instead, they loved the spring water from the hillsides, mostly east of the city, and they spent much of their manpower and energy trying to transport that water to their city so they could drink all this fresh water. You know, you look at these aqueducts, these huge bridges of stone. They're all over Europe where the Romans settled. And in Rome, they had, I think, eight or nine ancient aqueducts that brought fresh water into the city. Imagine people back then who had fresh running water. At least the rich had it. The poor it could be brought in, and, and they got their water from the public fountains, hence the legacy of these great fountains that we see today. Even the Trevi Fountain, wasn't that sort of the celebration of the end of an aqueduct? It was, and it, what it was was the celebration of the renewal of that ancient aqueduct because these ancient ones, as Rome was falling, one of the great ways that the Goths figured out to end the Roman Empire was to cut off their water supply, and that's what they did, the Goths did. So wait a second. So the fall of Rome, you've still got a Roman community. They don't have the strength to defend their infrastructure. Barbarians, they can see the Achilles heel of of what was left of Rome was their water supply, the aqueducts. The Goths surrounded the city, and they cut it off and plunged Rome into a thousand years of darkness and B.O. And and today, one of my favorite sites in Rome is the Aqueduct Park outside of town. And these, they're like loping into the city. You know that image when you win solitaire on your computer screen and you got all those cards going boop, 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 boop. It's just like that with these arches coming in. And you think 2,000 years ago, that brought water into the city of Rome. Francesca, you live near the Aqueduct Park, don't you? I do. It's just a couple of uh, subway stations from my house, and I often go there. Now people, you can see people playing golf by the ruins of the Aqueduct. (laughs) People go running there and they go bike riding, and you just see these colossal ruins amidst the pine trees and people still go there and I sometimes I wonder what they think when they look at the majesty of the past compared to the Rome mm. of today. But if I lived there like you, I would go there at the magic hour in the evening when the light is very warm and the colors are rich and people are out with their dogs strolling and so on and you got that history and that beautiful break from the intensity of the city. Yes, yes, and always that sense of the ancient and the modern together. I mean the fact mm-hmm. that you can go jogging by a Roman <laughs> aqueduct. That, yeah. It's always the past and the present that coalesce and become the experience that Rome is. Francesca, what was the population of ancient Rome at its peak? 
Well, the latest calculations are at the peak of a million two hundred thousand. A million two hundred thousand bladders. Now, imagine that. Jean talked about the, the sewer there at the Roman Forum. We all go to the Roman Forum. What's the name of the sewer line? It's the Cloaca Maxima, the Great Drain, 6th <laughs> century before Christ. 6th century, they, a great drain, and it goes from the, the common grounds of the Seven Hills, the, the Forum, yes. right down into the Tiber River. Right into the Tiber River, and there are sections of it that uh, actually still still work. Is that right? Still so work today, yeah. They actually engineered that in. Yes, and it even had its own goddess. I have to say she's one of my favorites, the Venus of the sewer. <laughs> the, what's, yeah. what's, what's her name? The Venere Cloacina, named after the, uh, the great uh, sewer <laughs> itself. So. One of the most fascinating bits of uh, Roman engineering I've seen when it comes to water is the distribution cap or whatever, where the 30-mile-long aqueduct ends of the Pontugard in southern France. It goes to Nîmes. Have you been there, Jean, where they've got... Uh, the, and it's interesting because you've got all the water rushing into the city, and then you've got this big well, and the lower pipes would be, when there's less water would go to power the neighborhood wells. And the higher pipes, when there's more water, they could afford to kind of waste it, and it would go to power rich people's decorative fountains. Does that make sense to you, uh, Francesca, in, in a Roman engineering sense? Yeah, certainly it would. With the aqueducts outside the city, there was one main point where they came into the city and then sort of branched out so that all of the neighborhoods had it. And they had to dole out the water in a way that was thoughtful on where do we really need it and where is it just a nicety. And one of the most famous cisterns was actually used for something else, and that is the Mamertine prison. This empty cistern became a prison where supposedly Saints Peter and Paul were put into prison. And you can go there today as you walk out of the uh, Roman Forum. There's the prison, and you pay a few bucks, go in, and you can go down into that big uh, oval-shaped cistern, and uh, they put a floor on it to... uh, house prisoners, and it's quite a... And it's actually a stop on the pilgrimage trail. Yes, it is, it is. We're letting the waters of modern Rome open up that city's amazing history with a fresh perspective on one of the greatest cities on Earth. Our guides right now on Travel with Rick Steves are Francesca Caruso and Jean Openshaw. Francesca, you took me to the basement of San Clemente once, uh, way down below. I mean, uh, San Clemente is famous because it's a church where you can go down like three or four layers to find different places of worship over the last 2,000 years. Way at the bottom, you showed me some ancient plumbing. There's actually a a natural spring that goes underneath that, one of the 200 natural springs that are in the underground of Rome. And it seems that the people who lived in one of the homes that are now below San Clemente are actually able to use and had access to that spring water coming through their home. So imagine having... So they just... That would have been a luxury back then. It would have been a luxury. And they grabbed it. When you think of Rome, you think of fountains, wonderful fountains, public fountains, uh, a lot of great Baroque statuary on the fountains decorating them. What are some highlights that way for somebody visiting Rome? Well, certainly I would choose as a, as a Baroque fountain, maybe not so much Trevi, which is sort of light Baroque, but I would certainly choose the Fountain of the Four Rivers by Gian Lorenzo Bernini in Piazza Navona. I think the reason that it's so splendid is that uh, Bernini was really able to bring nature and culture together, and he was able to bring this almost kinetic quality, it's been called, of a water to the composition of the fountain itself. He has lions, he has palm trees, he has these four immense men that represent the four continents, and it's really, it's very theatrical, but you really, it's the way that the stone and the water sort of meld to create this uh, work of art that's for me, unbelievable. Now, that I would always be, get excited uh, about That would be it. sort of textbook Baroque. And when we think about Rome, we think no-nonsense engineering. How do we keep a million people uh, not thirsty? And then if you think of Baroque, it is more theatrical, isn't it, uh, Jean? Uh, when you think of Baroque fountains, wouldn't that be sort of a 
great opportunity for a Baroque artist to do his thing. It is. And, and when Francesca says theatrical, you know, if I were to pick my favorite fountain, it would be the Trevi Fountain. How much more theatrical can that be? It literally has almost like a stage backdrop. They mm-hmm. use the building behind the statuary to be the backdrop for this thing. And then you see this figure of, well, not Neptune, it's Oceanus, but uh, this river god surfing through this truly avalanche of water. It's the melding of engineering. It's got like 24 different water spouts creating this huge gusher of water, mm-hmm. and yet it also is completely decorative. So it's that, that multimedia of statues and lights and water that really makes what we think of as Baroque. To see that at night, floodlit, with all the energy that the people provide and the happiness there, it's, it's still doing its thing. Francesca. So you see, everything that we've been saying goes back to the same point, that water is everything, because it was for hygiene, it was for drinking, but it was for decoration. So this ability that the Romans had to, a thousand years ago, bring this incredible amount of water to the city has given origin to all of these different things that make up the identity and the soul of a city. It's an amazing thing, and when you, and you go right back to, to the very, very foundations of Rome, correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is Rome was on the Tiber River because in old days you needed to be on a, on a river for transportation. It was as far up the river as you could go, uh, as you could navigate, in the first place where they crossed it with a bridge. And it was where the Etruscan civilization to the north met the Greek civilization to the south. So talk about a pivotal place based on a river with that water as the reason for Rome to be where Rome is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it was ideal. So as you say, it was the meeting point between the north where the Etruscans were, the Greeks in the south, and it was also sort of halfway between the areas in the, uh, in the interior and the coast, so absolutely perfect. And because of the island in the Tiber, it made crossing the river easier, and it was also possible to build two shorter bridges connecting to That's the... That's right. Yes, exactly. And you can see that today. I think those the bridges actually survives? Well, the most ancient uh, bridge in Rome is from 62 BC. It's the Pons Fabricius, and I find it so exciting to be able to walk across such an ancient bridge and imagine all of the generations that crossed it before me. It's those moments in Rome. Francesca Caruso and Gino Pinchot, this has been so much fun talking about water as an integral part of our Roman experience. Thanks so much. Grazie a te, Rick. Thank you. Grazie mille. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Casimir Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to WWNO in New Orleans for their help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com radio.